Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for reminding us of what family is, especially this time of season, this time of year, this time to celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing us together in the unity of the faith that we might worship you in this most important of ways. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. I really do hope that as a congregation we are not remiss in dismissing all the good work. We're on part 30, and that doesn't mean that every lesson is unique. It's part 30 for a reason, because the Spirit ordained it as a series so that you wouldn't forget where we're coming from, specifically the gospel uh, from faith to faith, as Paul would say in Romans 1.17. Um, don't forget how important and how central the gospel is to anything we study uh, and then when we talk about moving beyond salvation the gospel uh, what about life what does God have in store for us after salvation There's a lot of people out there I think that are confused and frankly are stuck and we're going to talk about a couple of key principles this evening relative to the sanctification process who's involved uh, it's been completely hacked and it's been made quite a religious thing, sanctification, when Scripture itself says, this is my work in you. So we'll investigate that some more in the Scriptures. Uh, before we do that, though, during Sunday's Christmas special message, we were given several stop-and-think principles. For starters, um, up here on the board, we read 2 Corinthians 9, 6. If you want the most out of Christmas time, you've got to give the most. Give Christ first as gospel. Give others your heart. Give all your love. Those are the greatest gifts, not things under a Christmas tree, not retail gifts. These are the great gifts, folks, starting with the gospel uh, and then giving of yourself. And that's what the Spirit's been sort of getting at for months now. Sunday's message was about the gift of giving. Most people, unfortunately, consider Christmas time as the gift of receiving. They think of Christmas as, oh, I'm going to get stuff. I'm going to get retail. I'm going to create my list. And who's to blame? I mean, we were all once kids, and for many of us, that's what we were trained to do. Christmas was getting stuff. Christmas was Christmas lists. Christmas was writing a, a list out to, to Santa Claus guy or something like this. Um, so that we could get stuff. And that's very unfortunate. So for most people, uh, Christmas time is the gift of receiving. And even if they don't celebrate Christmas, the natural man does not understand the Lord Jesus Christ's words uh, in Acts 20.35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Spirit had me thinking a lot about that. Uh, after service, uh, service on Sunday, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
while an unregenerate man might have a desire to give more than to receive, the true issue is a spiritual one. So when the Lord Jesus Christ says it's more blessed to give than to receive, we're talking about a spiritual issue, which means it's unattainable by the unregenerate. It's unattainable, that statement. The fullness of it, understanding it, tasting it, realizing it, living it, uh, it's unattainable because it's a spiritually appraised issue. It's a spiritual issue. And he had me thinking and sort of delving into that a little bit more. Um, so again, it's a spiritual issue, not an emotional one. A lot of people say, oh, I like to give, you know, it's, and it's, a, it's sort of a, an emotional thing. And that's something that even an unbeliever can do. But since it's spiritual, this is what it means to receive the light. So anyone can read the Bible. Fair statement. Unbelievers read it all the time. Not, I mean, a lot of I've heard of unbelievers reading it for the sake of moral compass issues. In other words, they read like Proverbs or Psalms or Ecclesiastes, and they're like, oh, this is a great book. I'm just going to pluck the moral compass things out of this thing. But they don't actually receive true light from the Bible. They're able to model their own morality after biblical principles, but they don't actually receive the fullness. They don't understand when Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. They think that's a moral compass issue. What Jesus was actually saying is it really is more blessed to give than to receive. And if you have the light, when the lights turn on, you realize how magnificent it is to be able to give. And that's what the Spirit was saying on Christmas, the gift of giving, not the gift of receiving. So this is what it means to receive the light, to walk in the light, only as believers can. I did some research with our old friend Jonathan Edwards on spiritual light, and you know how he gets a bit wordy, so just bear with his language. He's just a really intelligent individual that wrote sort of fancifully. Um, this spiritual light is not the suggesting of any new truths or propositions not contained in the Word of God. So some people say, oh, I've been enlightened, in the, and I know stuff that's not even in the Bible. That's not even what's in view here. There's something much more basic, because even an unbeliever, again, can grab moral truths out of the Bible. But something else happens, something supernatural happens, for a believer. So this spiritual light is not the suggesting of any new truths or propositions not contained in the Word of God. This suggesting of new truths or doctrines to the mind, independent of any antecedent revelation, that just means becoming coming before, antecedent revelation of those propositions, either in word or writing, is inspiration, such as the prophets and apostles had, and such as some enthusiasts pretend to. But this spiritual light that I am speaking of is quite a different thing than inspiration. It reveals no new doctrine. It suggests no new proposition to the mind. It teaches no new thing of God or Christ or another world not taught in the Bible, but only gives a due apprehension of those things that are taught in the Word of God. Thus, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious 
and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former, (coughs) excuse me, that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. And he's saying the same thing the Spirit's been saying, albeit more eloquently, from this pulpit for a while. You can have knowledge of something, but not actually understand it. An unregenerate person can have knowledge of the morality in the Bible, but not understand it. They might read Jesus's, you know, quote there, more blessed to give than to receive. And they might understand the morality of it, but they don't understand the fullness of it. And that's what he's saying here. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. The former may be obtained by hearsay but the latter only by seeing the countenance. When the heart is sensible of the beauty and amiableness of a thing, it necessarily feels pleasure in the apprehension. It is implied in a person being heartily sensible of the loveliness of a thing that the idea of it is pleasant to his soul, which is a far different thing from having a rational opinion that it is excellent. I know that's quite wordy, but I hope you see what he's saying. He's been saying the same thing that the Spirit's been saying from the pulpit. It's one thing to have an academic understanding of something. It's a whole other thing to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's one thing to understand even the Greek words, agape, phileo, Philadelphia, right? You want to get all fancy, of love. It's a whole other thing to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and understand and abide in that love totally different things. You see, this is precisely why an unregenerate person doesn't fully comprehend our Lord's words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Go to Jude 19, right before the book of Revelation. Jude 19. We know Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you know, it's impossible for an unregenerate person to understand and have an understanding the way you and I can, because they are spiritually appraised things in the Bible. Jude 19 echoes that sentiment. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. In other words, there's no supernatural enablement. So even though they might understand the morality of it's more blessed to give than to receive, and they might even model their own lives after that morality, And the world might pat them on the back and say, you're a swell chap. The reality is that they don't have the gift of understanding that the way you do. Because that is a supernatural reality. And when we talk about supernatural reality, the one that imparts supernatural understanding is no other than God the Holy Spirit. And what does Jude just say? The worldly-minded, the unbelievers, are devoid of the Spirit. So they don't have it. Again, our first stop-and-think principle from Sunday was this. If you want the most out of Christmas time, you've got to give the most. Give Christ first, His gospel. Give others your heart. Give all your love. Those are the greatest gifts. 
Next, we were given this relative to the concept of grace. Anytime you talk about giving in Scripture, you're talking about grace. You already possess everything you could possibly need to give this Christmas. Therefore, there's absolutely no reason to be anxious about the Christmas season or your ability to give. Too much anxiety going on. Uh, and we all know pretty much what it is. There's so much pressure from without. Give, give, give. Uh, if, you, if you really, and then you're sitting there with like your spouse or something, right? If you really loved your wife, you'd give her this new diamond from Zales. And they're basically saying, because you, you won't because you don't. You see what I'm saying? If you really loved your kids, you'd get them this new game, and there's your kid sitting there. If you really liked your dog, and your dog's like, <laughs> you know, if you really liked your friends, you know, you'd send them this card or you know, who knows, whatever, right? That's retail pressure. And it puts, if you buy the lie and it seeps in somehow, you're anxious. Before you know it, you're kind of anxious about Christmas and you don't even know why necessarily. It's because of all the garbage. And this was the point. Again, you already possess everything you could possibly need to give at Christmas. You don't need a bank account to give anybody anything that has any real eternal value. You can give them the Word of God. That's free. Our final stop and think principle was this on Christmas giving. Love is the least expensive, most valuable gift ever given. The well never runs dry. The account is never overdrafted. The givers are never broke. So it's true. Love you have. Everyone here has love. And of course, our closing principle that was followed by the song after the title there, it's good to be alive. Aren't you glad to be alive? Better yet, aren't you glad to be alive in Christ this Christmas? I mean, think of how many people are devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit saying, stop it. Stop whatever you're anxious about. Whatever's going on with you, your family, or your friends, or whatever's irritating you, stop it. They don't even have that. They don't even have that. Think about that. There's a lot of people alive struggling this Christmas because they don't have Christ. They're not glad or don't understand that it's actually good to be alive. Share the joy, share your life, your heart, your love this season. So what a wonderful message to get us situated for the upcoming celebration of our Lord and Savior's birth. With that said, we have to change gears. Uh, last Thursday, we were finishing up our thoughts. Go to 2 Timothy 3.6. Timothy 3.6. We were finishing up our thoughts on this passage. can't believe how much time he actually spent with us on it. But he did. I think it's because... The world is also geared towards giving everyone excuses. Every, there's an excuse for every, You can pretty much do anything. And if you've got the savvy or possibly even the money, you can get the blame shifted off of you to someone else. Somehow. It happens in court, the court of law all the time. People get, off, get away quit, literally with murder because they blame someone else in their childhood. Well, I was abused. Well, that doesn't make murder right today, does it? But yet it happens. 2 Timothy 3, 6-7. to 7. 
For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. So really the crux of our discussion uh, was this up here on the board, falling prey to sin. There are few prey easier to captivate, that's the Ike Malatizzo, it means take away in chains even, than weak women. And we understood that, we looked at that even deeper. There's few prey easier to captivate than weak women. The deal with Gunai Karion was that there was a certain um, issue that Paul was making with weak women. In other words, he wasn't letting them off the hook either. There was a certain scorn there. You're there because of your own free will, in other words. There's a reason you're easily dragged away where the next person isn't. Why is it not happening to everyone then? It's because you're stuck in emotional dysfunction junction because of the decisions you chose to get you down, spiral down in this condition where you're easy prey. Well, there's a sense of responsibility for that person as well as the sleazeball that's taking advantage of that person. And that's all Paul was really saying. And just to sort of put a capstone on that, uh, the practical side of it, sin has a tendency to collaborate outward with inward and vice versa. The undercurrent and the lessons have been then, if we elevate our thinking up a little bit, responsibility for self, not a novel concept from this pulpit, not at all, at least for the last couple of years now, responsibility for self, a fundamental tenet of biblical healing and freedom is that a person takes responsibility for themselves. In other words, take responsibility for your own decisions. Nobody sins for you. Amen? That's, that is just a fact. There's no one that actually sins for you. <laughs> You're the one who chooses to sin. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter at all what your past is. Is it understandable? Sure. Maybe God shows you a little patience or something along the way. But it's still a sin. And so there's an issue here that the Spirit's been bringing out for years now. A fundamental tenet of biblical healing and freedom is that a person takes responsibility for themselves. And it's not just that the Spirit wants to say, see, that was you, that was you, and wag his finger at you. He's saying, listen, if you want to be healed and set free, then you have to take responsibility for yourself. Because if you don't, I've got nothing to work with. You're just pointing your finger somewhere else. That's all he's saying. Satan knows the point on the board and has concocted a way out of this with things like self-victimization. I'll go quickly through this. This is review. This is from Wikipedia. Self-victimization or victim playing is the fabrication of victimhood for a variety of reasons, such to justify abuse to, uh, or of others, to manipulate others, a coping strategy, or attention-seeking. Self-victimization, practically when a person blames everyone else for their own poor decision-making, compounding their sinning even further. That's what makes a weak woman. Someone who says, well, it's not my fault, I'm just going to sin again. It's not my fault, I'm going to sin again. It's not my fault, I'm going to keep sinning, and then you end up in this rut, and you're the one who sinned the whole time. That's called compound sinning. And it would be avoided if a person just stopped at the beginning and said, I totally am responsible for these, this sin, and that's the end of it. And I'm going to just confess it with God, pray about it, see what can go on. 
Again, I did some more research on that. And these are just things to, you know, precipitate the, the right thinking on what self-victimization is, what it looks like from out of the fog.net, a spouse challenged over emptying. These are just examples off this webpage. A spouse challenged over emptying the joint account co uh, complains the other partner is neglecting their needs. A husband hits his wife and then when confronted with his actions complains that he is treated worse in other ways. A mother beats or neglects her children and diverts challenges about it by only discussing her own medical complaints. A spouse is having an affair and claims the other partner drove them to it. A person spreads false accusations about physical or sexual abuse in the home. A thief caught red-handed tells stories about how they were abused as a child. A narcissistic boss mistreats a subordinate and then claims a subordinate's behavior was hurting the company as justification. A teenager starts a fight with a sibling, then complains about the resulting bruises. And then a young girl overdoses and then says she did it because nobody listens to her. So the point is that even if you can understand how some things happen, the plain truth is that everybody has a free will. And as far as we believe is a concern, God the Holy Spirit is right there to convict us of right and wrong. And there you have it. You make the decision to sin or not. And it's that simple. So there's no self-victimization in the Bible, uh, such as the cop-out known as such. And Paul in the very descriptive Greek language, conveys that a person who plays this game remains stunted and therefore easy prey. What does it say? He says in verse 7, you're still 2 Timothy 3, right? Yeah. Verse 7, he says, what's he say about these weak women? The ones who have gotten to this situation, always learning from other sinners and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So they're basically sort of paralyzed by their own sinning. And, you, and they're not, it's not right to completely look to everyone else. It's not that there aren't, or there isn't pressure from without, but at the end of the day, they are part of the cause for where they're at. And this was the point up here on the board that helped us along with that. Self-victimizers remain young. If you've come across anyone in the spiritual life that has a habit of blaming everyone else, they're like children. They don't grow up very well. They're still very young. Their attitude about being a grown-up, they want to be treated as a grown-up when it's good for them, but when the pressure's on, they're like children. They're still very young. They don't handle pressure very well. You put a little pressure on them, and they, get, they either you know, want to fight you, or they get completely emotional, and that's the exact same thing as the weak women. They can't handle pressure. Why? Because they're still young. I mean, think about it. Grab a little five-year-old and lean into them. You don't even have to lean that much. You just go like this to some of them. What'd you say? <laughs> that's what happens in the spiritual life to individuals that remain young, that they've been playing the victim all these years, and they haven't grown up because they haven't given the Spirit anything to work with. The problem with being from the weak women camp is that a person never grows up. It's often why those fed up with such antics can be heard exclaiming, grow up. So 
That's what the Spirit has to say on that. Satan doesn't want you to grow up after all and bring glory to God. I mean, why do we have lessons like this? So that you can say, oh, that's me, I feel terrible about being a schmuck. No, this is not what... He's trying to sanctify you. Remember where we're at. Gospel salvation, and then what? Sanctification. Sanctification means growing up, maturing, being set aside for God's purposes. Why? Because when you're set aside for God's purposes and you're obedient, you bring glory to Him. See, a young person wants all the glory, but doesn't actually want to go through the process of being sanctified. It's like, you know, the, the one who wants to be a cop just to wear the uniform. Or the one that says, I want to be a Marine. And then when a war comes out, they're like, I'm conscientious objector. You just wanted the uniform. You just wanted to be part of the gang. You want to be treated like a grown-up. You want to be called a grown-up. But when the pressure's on, you can't handle it. And that doesn't bring glory to God. That's what the Spirit's doing this for. But there's always grace available to the humble. And the humble person stops playing games. So... Skirting self-responsibility. Don't you realize that Satan encourages such things as self-victimization because it keeps you from glorifying God in time. That's what this is all about, folks. Self-victimization, playing the victim, uh, being like a weak woman, consistently dragging away, never, never really growing up. That doesn't bring glory to God. And Satan knows it. So he gives you the... the um, the out, the compound, the method, and the world says, great, we'll, we'll accept that because it keeps you from glorifying God. God's grace does sanctify you, providing you with numerous gifts to achieve that end in you like the one that's before you right now. I mean, who else is going to have this conversation with you, frankly? Do you really think, when's the last time your friend came up to you and said, you know what, grow up! If they were real, if they're a really good friend, they might actually say that to you. A true friend will say that. Grow up. Put your big girl panties on. Pick up your skirt. Whatever you're saying is to a person, grow up. That's a that's what a good friend does. We might call it tough love, whatever. But the reality is, they're looking out for you. They're saying you need to grow up, not because you're irritating me, because you are, but for you, for you. So that you do understand wonderful principles such as it's more blessed to give than to receive. See, a self-victimizing young person doesn't understand that. They may say they understand it, but they don't truly understand it. And so God, the Holy Spirit, motivates others to say, listen, God wants you to understand the greater realities in the Word of God. Wants you to be delivered. Wants you to be set free in time. Wants you to be sanctified from yourself, frankly. So uh, who else is going to have the conversation? I mean, many of these conversations start with a pulpit like this one, one that's honest. That's why I get so ticked off. I won't go there, but I get so ticked off with all these so-called encouragement ministries. That's all they do. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Nobody ever wants to have the tough conversations. Nobody actually wants to lay down the law. And because they never lay down the law, these people, they think they're growing, but they're still stunted. They just feel good for another moment. Because someone lied to them, gave them a half-truth. Eh, you know, but nobody really wants to have the whole thing anyways. Most people are too wimpy to actually handle the truth. 
I'm just thinking of a movie. <laughs> Ephesians 4.11. I'll give you the message this time because we looked at it last time in the NASB. He handed out gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church. Until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ. That's the, almost the antithesis of the weak women. No prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters, God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in love. That cannot happen, my friends, if you refuse to take responsibility for yourselves. Your sanctification will be stunted. No questions. You don't believe me? Keep reading your Bible. It's there, all over the place. And Paul fought the good fight. Paul was the same type of individual that every pastor or shepherd should be. When it, the time was out of season, didn't matter. This is what's going on, folks. Wake up. Wake up. Take responsibility for yourself. God, the Holy Spirit, is trying to sanctify you in time so you can bring glory to God. What are you doing? Stuck in this sin. Their fault. His fault. It's her fault. Their fault. The great they. Who's the they, by the way? That one always kills me. They don't want me to succeed. Who's they? I don't know just don't want to take responsibility for myself. They do this. Everybody's a conspiracy. Anyways, I digress. Here's another way to consider what the Spirit's saying here regarding taking responsibility for self. Sanctification depends upon confession. And don't go thinking it's always about sin. Confess, homologato, means to what? Agree with God, whether it's right or wrong. Do I or do I not agree with God? That's what's going to sanctify you. Sanctification depends upon confession. Confession is being honest with God in the privacy of your own soul. Not that He needs to be informed. Rather that you need to face the facts about yourself. God doesn't need to be informed. He knows more things about you than you know about you. So how in the world could confession be for him unless you're trying to make a puppet out of him? So concentrate. It's an important point. It's not that the Spirit won't convict you if you refuse to confess. To the contrary, actually. Let me say that again. So if you're still stuck in a little religion, listen up, please. This is important. It's not that the Spirit won't convict you if you refuse to confess. To the contrary, actually. He won't leave you either. Otherwise, that would make God a liar. The Spirit's 
fundamental desire is to pluro, fill, control, influence, fill your sails, however you like to think about it, uh, convict you of right and wrong. That's what he wants for you. He uses the word of God as sort of the substance to do so, right? The raw materials. So think about this for a moment. The spirit in confession. And again, confession is not just for sin. Think confess, I need to agree with God. Because when I agree with God, I'm on the right path, if you would. He can sanctify me. Right? Obedience is a function of being filled. For example, commands, love, walk, do, forgive, confess, etc. What are those? Commands. And we have the option to what? Obey. Who's convicting us to obey? God, the Holy Spirit. So obedience, then, is a function of being filled. Amen? All right, pretty simple. Therefore, obeying the command to confess is a function of being filled. It is the Spirit that convicts a person of right and wrong, leading a person to confession. Where does he do it? In your conscience. So we have the faculty. But think about this again. Obedience is a function of being filled. Obeying the command to confess is a function of being filled. It is the Spirit that convicts a person of right and wrong, leading a person to confession. So we might say it this way, and this is really to get rid of any lasting religion you might have in your soul on the topic of confession, because people are so darn religious when it comes to confession. Half of them don't even understand what confession means. They say, you mean, I, what do you mean I can confess Jesus as Lord? That doesn't sound like confession to me. I thought I confessed my sins. They don't even understand what confession is. So they are easy prey as well. Weak women. Avoiding being built up to the maturity of Christ, towards Christ, the fullness of Christ, as we just looked at in Ephesians 4. Spirit and confession. It seems some people have gotten that backwards, saying that, saying something religious like confession provides access to the Spirit. Where's that in the Bible? You show me where that is in the Bible. That's human works. Think about that. Man proposes he's the Spirit's puppeteer. Think about that. In other words, if you lose the Spirit, and then it takes you human ability, because the Spirit's somehow gone, to recover, I guess, or to get him back, but you don't have the Spirit's ministry, how do you get him back then? I guess you logically would be lost forever. Unless he's still there with you, convicting you to come up right on a subject, to confess something's right or wrong. So concentrate. In other words, if a believer is ever without the Spirit's ministry, then what supernatural power do they have available to them? to perform the divine good work of confession? 
Again, if a believer is ever without the Spirit's ministry, then what supernatural power do they have available to them to perform the divine good work of confession? On the flip side, to say that man somehow has the ability to shut down the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to say that man is somehow more powerful than he is. Isn't that what religion suggests in every way? Let's make God our little puppet. That's all religion is, folks. It's amazing what people will accept because they want religion. Want to fill this place up right now? Let's just start teaching religion. Encouragement and religion. Feeling discouraged? Here's a little religious practice. Really? Yeah. Do this thing, you're good with God again. Oh, amen. So I can keep speaking courage, and then when I screw up, I can just do this little religious thing. That's not a relationship. Again, our pivotal point up here on the board. Sanctification depends upon confession. Confession is being honest with God in the privacy of your own soul, not that he needs to be informed, Rather, that you need to face the facts about yourself. This is about a relationship, folks. I wrote a blog once titled, Confession is for You, that dealt with this topic. God already knows everything, all the little skeletons in your closet. So, who's confession for then? It's not for Him. You're not power, too powerful where you threw Him out and shut down his ministry, you're not so powerful that you're able to shut him off because he's going to convict you. So what's confession for then? Confession's for you. Why? Because that's how he can start sanctifying you. If you don't agree with him, how's he going to sanctify you? How's he going to set apart? All right, you go to a job, and the boss says, all right, your whole, my whole job right now is to build a bridge. Okay, you're my bridge builder. Okay? When you build a bridge, you get to walk to the other side. Cool? Cool. Right? There's a pot of gold on the other side. Awesome. Okay. Okay, here's the plans. You ready? Yeah, I don't like those plans. I disagree. That's what it means not to confess. That's what it means not to be filled. The Spirit says, here are the plans. All right, ready? Here are the plans. Obey. Obey these things in here, and the bridge, we'll build the bridge together. It'll be good. You'll be sanctified, because on the other side, you'll be set apart for God's purposes. Amen? No, I disagree. I disagree. You know why I can't do this? Because my mommy was mean to me. What? I, 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 don't, know how to, I don't know how to use a hammer. My dad was absent. I don't know how to use a hammer. Then Learn! That's always my favorite. I don't know how to do that. Then learn, you jackass. Seriously, learn. Where's all, what's with the excuses? Everybody's in like dysfunction junction because everybody's an excuse why they never should move forward. Why it's someone else's fault. And God's like, are you kidding me? I gave you my very best 
I gave you everything. I'm never going to ask you to do something without giving you the grace to do it in the first place. So what are you telling me then? My spirit's a liar? My spirit's telling you to do something when you don't have the ability to do it? That's all confession is, folks. He's trying to sanctify you. Sanctify just means make you set aside for his purposes. And when you're set aside for his purposes, he matures you. In other words, the whole thing, you bring glory to God. Because even the angels are rubbernecking, saying, you mean the cockroach? You mean that self-absorbed jackass from the 60s? The free-loving one? Now they're laying down their life for Jesus? Are you kidding me? But if you don't confess or agree with God about how he does that thing, then what do you expect? You ought to expect nothing. That's a double-minded person, as James would say. You ought to expect nothing. So, sanctification depends on confession. I mean, it's literally fundamental. Don't you think Satan knows that? And he says, hmm, confession. I can totally make a religion out of that one. That's what he's done. Regardless of whether or not a denomination has a name or not, it's one of his favorites. Think about it. It's one of his favorites. Why? Because everybody sins. So one of his favorite linchpins to every religion, and it doesn't even have to be by name, because there's a lot of religions out there that just go by a different name, and many of us are familiar with them. It doesn't matter. If he can get a religion made out of the act of confession, he's got you. Because you just put God like a puppet. (laughs) He's very smart. And if he's got you all screwed up in religion over the concept of something so simple as confession, it's not difficult. It's only difficult because man makes it difficult. Then your sanctification is stunted. Why? Look at the title. Sanctification depends upon confession. How is he ever going to sanctify you if you disagree? How is he ever going to build a bridge with you to set you apart for his purposes? in time, experientially, if you disagree with the game plan, with the foreman on the job, who's the spirit, how's he ever going to do that? He cannot. Therefore, you stay on this side of the river in dysfunction junction, pointing at everybody else, while a few cross over. That's all he's saying, folks. Confession is being honest with God in the privacy of your own soul, not that he needs to be informed, rather that you need to face the facts about yourself. Pressing on from Thursday, then, up here on the board, skirting self-responsibility, few things seem to debilitate the healing power of the word more than self-victimization. Sanctification is stunted for as long as a person continues to blame others for their own sins. Because God says you're responsible for your sins. Anybody doubt that? It's in the Bible? Okay. You're responsible for your own sins. Now, if you disagree on that point, then you're stuck. If you disagree, you're not confessing. You're not saying the same thing as God. You're not taking responsibility for yourself. 
And to the degree you do that, to that degree you're stuck. To that degree you're stunted. That's why, look, ask DJ. He's been, he's been doing this for, since he was born. Is it? Have you seen people go from zero to 100 in a few short years? Have you seen people go from zero to 10 in decades? What's the difference? Humility. I could end the lesson right there. Humility. That's the only difference. Humility looks in the mirror and says, that's, who, that's me. I got sin written all over my face. I'm not going to hell for it, but I got to agree with God on this issue. But I'm also going to agree with him about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's my Lord. I'm also going to agree with him that he gave me love because God is love. I'm going to agree with him on all of it. And when I do that, then he can sanctify me. So there's few things that seem to debilitate the healing power of the word more than self-victimization. It's such a robbery, folks. Oh, it's such a robbery. It's so heinous and so it's grotesque. And it's designed by Satan from the pit of hell. Satan's like, yeah, just keep blaming everybody else. Just keep blaming everybody else. For as long as you do that, you're stuck. Because you're not confessing the truth. The truth is, you're responsible for yourself. Not your parents, not your exes, not your children, not your next-door neighbor, not nobody. You're responsible for yourself. And the sooner you realize that, the faster you accelerate, and that's what DJ answered with. That's called humility. There's a form of arrogance that's so deeply rooted in people and so encouraged by the world that they think that just because they had a certain background that they can point to it as sort of an easing of their own sinful decisions. That is garbage from the pit of hell. And that's what the Spirit's saying. He's saying, you take that, you take that bait, you're stuck. And you will be a weak woman. We also contemplated the consequences of sin last week and that part of the sanctification process after salvation is being schooled or disciplined by the law of God. Beginning with the great litmus test, I like to think of this way, what's the great litmus test? You might say to yourself, you know, if there's something going on in your life, is what I am doing consistent with the love of God? That's what you have to ask yourself. Is what I'm doing in that moment consistent with the love of God? That's an easy one, isn't it? Because you already know what the deal is. All you have to do is ask that question. And if it's a sin, it's not. And don't try to justify it. God doesn't, God doesn't do that thing. He doesn't make deals with people. I was thinking about that a lot, too, because... You know, I looked at the blogs. One of the books I'm writing is um, gigantuous. It's just basically organizing all the blogs and you know, so you can get on your Kindle and that kind of a thing. One of the biggest areas is individuality. I didn't even realize it. Lots of blogs on individuality. So God really wants us to be individuals. But 
He doesn't give us the right to individually interpret truth, if that makes sense. God the Holy Spirit's only, give, only going to give all of us one truth. We don't have the opportunity to say, well, you know, your relationship with God is this way and mine's this way. And mine's in such a way that I can ignore two-thirds of the Bible. I can ignore certain commands in the Bible because God and I, you know, we have a thing. That's a lie. Listen, you want to get yourself out of um, dysfunction junction quickly? If it's a command, if it's a sin, then it's wrong. It's that simple. If it's a command and and it's a good thing, then it's right. That's what confession is. But you don't have that right to stand before God and say, well, I have such a wonderful, long-lasting personal relationship with God that the rules don't apply to me in this area. So you have to ask yourself, is what I am doing consistent with the love of God? And remember, oh myopic ones, we're to live for others. In many, many ways, the first place we look when we answer that question is, how is this going to affect other people? Not just one person, not just two people who are directly, but how about all the people that are indirectly affected? Is the love of God going to be evidence there too? Or is just this about you? You see? Is what I'm doing consistent with the love of God? The simple fact that our sins have consequences and ripple effects in time requires that we understand why. Once we realize the differences between positional sanctification, which is what happens or is sealed with the Spirit Himself at salvation, positional sanctification, we, once we realize the differences between positional and what we would call experiential, the progressive sanctification, we can press on. Our lessons on the gospel and salvation dealt with the positional aspects of sanctification. What was the big thing? Make sure you're saved. <laughs> Make sure you have the gospel right in the first place. Make sure that you understand and you're securely placed in Christ in the first place. Because anything after that, if you're not, won't even make sense. The best you'll get is a moral compass. And you'll go out in religion and try to achieve this goal against the moral compass that you've been given that's actually not even supernaturally enabled. And you'll wonder and look back, oh, why am I still a miserable crank? Well, so for some people, they're not even saved. So that was our first order of business. But we're assuming that everybody's beyond that. So our lessons on the gospel and salvation dealt with the positional aspects of sanctification. That becomes our tether to Christ's love and life. Now our attention has been turned towards sanctification after salvation. And we mustn't ever confuse the two. They are definitely related. They are integrally related. God sanctifies. It basically starts with positional. But that's just it's from faith to faith. It's the start. That's the beauty of it. Sanctification after salvation. The issue isn't forgiveness. You've already been forgiven, folks. The issue isn't forgiveness, where you're going to end up in hell if you murder someone even. 
or do, as some religions say, some kind of sin that's so bad that the cross didn't cover it. The issue is discipline in many ways. Proverbs 3, 11 to 14. Romans 8, 1 to 2 in the Amplified. Therefore there is now no condemnation, no guilty verdict, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in Him as personal Lord and Savior. For the law of the Spirit of life, which is in Christ Jesus, the law of our new being, has set you free from the law of sin and death. So that's an experiential issue that obviously is the basis of, excuse me, a positional issue that's obviously the basis of experiential issues. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 in the Amplified, My son, do not reject or take lightly the discipline of the Lord. Learn from your mistakes and the testing that comes from his correction through discipline. Nor despise his rebuke for those whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Again, the point on the board, the issue isn't forgiveness. After salvation, the issue is discipline. If you, in other words, if you sin, the issue isn't forgiveness necessarily. It's the discipline. It's what do you do with the consequences of sin? What happens when we have to, quote, own up to or realize that we are the reason for the ripple effect, the consequences of said sin? Are we to think that we're going to go to hell? No, that's Romans 8, 1 and 2. But God will discipline us in a variety of ways. More practically, up here on the board, the value of discipline is a certain understanding that exists on the other side of discipline, something that discipline uniquely teaches us. And if you've ever been disciplined, if you realize an area in your life where you've been disciplined, you know that in 2020, or uh, in retrospect, or hindsight, it's 2020. You look back and you say, now I see. It was painful when I was going through. I didn't like it. I complained. But now I see what he was doing, and I'm grateful. But you had to confess in the first place, right? You had to see things the way he sees. He might turn you around and go, hey, now do you see what I did? No. I'm still mad at you. What? When you sinned, I corrected you for your own benefit, and now you're pouting. No. Well, then you're still unwilling to confess that you're the problem. God forbid we say he's the problem, right? But that's what we're saying when we're quote-unquote mad at him many times. The value of discipline is a certain understanding that exists on the other side of discipline, something that discipline uniquely teaches us up here on the board. Though the eternal penalty has been paid for for all of your sins, the experiential aspects of it that affect one's sanctification must be dealt with head-on. That's what the Spirit's saying. The Spirit encourages us through the scripture he inspired long ago. So you've got to remember that not only is he the minister in our own lives, but the, the canon that he inspired himself long ago is what he uses as force. Proverbs 3, 13 and 14, in the Amplified, happy, blessed, considered fortunate, to be admired is the man who finds skillful and godly wisdom, and the man who gains understanding and insight, learning from God's word and life's experiences. For wisdom's profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain is better than fine gold. I mean, 
think about it. You can look just practically around you, even in a church like this or just in your life in general. The wisest people you will find are the humblest. Why do you think that is? <laughs> Why? Because they're not all ensnared in the other stuff. They're not blaming anybody else. They're not looking to anybody else. They're not stuck in dysfunction junction. They're not being led away by their noses. They're not being captivated and led away as prisoners by every Tom, Dick, and Harry who has something new to say to them. Uh, they're not ever completely blown apart at the seams because someone said, you're ugly. Ah! And they spend the next week in a corner somewhere mad at God that he didn't make them, quote-unquote, prettier or more handsome. Are you serious? Are you serious? You're going to let somebody else decide your happiness? You're going to, what? These are the things that the Spirit's trying to impress upon us. He's saying, listen, if you want to be wise, which brings glory to God, there's a difference between knowledgeable and wise, remember? Academics and wisdom. An arrogant person can have academics. A humble person has wisdom. So the wisest people are also the humblest people, which means that they've failed and realize they've failed a bazillion times. But the key to their quote-unquote spiritual success is that, guess what? They confess that they failed. All right, go back to, I'm almost out of time, go back to 2 Timothy 3.6. We'll say a couple of words on what's really going on, and I have to close up. I can't believe I'm out of time. I must have had a lot of side notes, huh? 2 Timothy 3.6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women. What the Spirit's saying is, well, you, I hope you're not one of the first people that's going into households and taking advantage of spiritually weak people. What the Spirit's saying is make sure you're not a weak woman. Make sure you're not easy prey. That's been our lessons. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in a nutshell, and i got to close, there are two practical things that Paul is dealing with in this passage, in 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7. Paul is pointing out two breaches of the family. One, it's a sin to infiltrate a family, whether it's a household or a church, by taking advantage of its weaknesses. In other words, you can be a sinner from without. Heinous, gross sin. Number two, it's a sin to continue to make choices that make a family weak. And that's what happens from within. And that's what enables the people from without to conspire with the sin from within. And then Satan wins, and there's no glory to God. God, the Holy Spirit, is trying to sanctify you in time. And if you're a member of the family, listen, if you're a member of the family, consider it a, um, a duty. Consider it a duty that it's not, look, it always seems to be, and I don't want to digress too far, but in every family there always seems to be at least one. In many families, much more. Sometimes the whole family's a mess. But there always seems to be one that is so self-absorbed 
busy blaming everybody, blaming parents, blaming the his church family, the pastor, the you know the people over here, and you know this kind of a thing and that. that. Well, look, you know that gets sickening. So from a duty perspective, don't be that person. Because if you're that person, you're the one that Satan's using as an agent to blow up the family. So cut it out, is what Paul's saying. He's saying, cut it. We're after the maturity and the unity of the faith. We don't need people making poor decisions upon poor decisions upon poor decisions and buying the lie that they can blame everybody else, playing the victim every single time. You know, that weighs on everyone else. I think in Galatians 6, we're supposed to bear with one another's burdens, right, to help lift them up. Well, what happens when the strong one's having a bad day? Oh, I guess you're out of luck then, because the weak one's never available because they're too self-absorbed. It's always this way. It's always like this one-way thing. You know what I'm saying? And that's what the Spirit's saying. He's saying, don't be that family member where you're the anchor of the family. You're the one that's constantly the point of fracture in the family. Grow up! Like Paul said. We're not going to put up with infancy forever. Grow up! I mean, I'm sure that's, you know, anyways, I'm sure that's made people flee from this congregation in the past when the Spirit says, grow up! You want to come in and be pathetic the rest of your life? You want to look there? This isn't an encouragement and a lying religious organization. It's going it's to enable you in your disgusting little game that you play. So those people never last in a ministry like this one. Too honest. Too upfront. So what he's saying is, and I don't know what's going on in any one of your souls, I have um, high esteem for this congregation. I do. Not that we're without problems myself included. But he's saying, don't, the times, you know, end times, right? The times are getting harder, man. We don't need any chinks. We don't need any points of fracture. We need people to buckle down, to remember that we're all part of a family, Christ's family. And this stuff matters, folks. We're trying to bring glory to God. So stop being so self-absorbed. Amen? That's all he's saying, because he's trying to sanctify us. And he can't do it if we don't look in the mirror and see what he sees. That's confession. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.